How often do you read food labels? Do you read the ingredients? Do you find yourself wondering how to pronounce some of those ingredients and then wonder what are they doing in your food? What is allowed, scare quotes included, to be in our food is increasingly making the U.S. an outlier of toxic foods. Many countries in the world have banned many of the chemicals the U.S. says are safe to eat. Did you know that the European Union has stricter food additive laws than the U.S.? Did you know some states are start, starting to set higher standards for what they'll allow to be sold to consumers? One such state may not surprise you. Another one just might. The Eating Liberty Podcast, Episode 278, Food and Freedom, Once a Week for Life. Dan Reed here. In many ways, in many of my years as a chef, it never really occurred to me to ask what was in the cans and boxes of ingredients we used to make the food we served our guests. What choice did we have? We needed it, we bought it, we used it. In recent years, as more people are becoming aware of what they're eating, they and I have started to pay attention to what those ingredients are that we can't grow, pick, or pronounce. I've only scratched the surface of what there is to know about food additives. What I'm learning, I'm sharing with you so you can make better shopping choices too. Critics of capitalism often cite profits over people as one of the main complaints. This isn't an economics episode, exactly, nor is it a bash on preferences and substitutes. Perhaps it is a show about unintended consequences. It's a show about how states can and are, in at least one certain example, ignoring FDA guidelines, perhaps. I'm not certain of the exact word here, and creating laws that ban otherwise approved food additive ingredients seems like maybe it's a good idea. We're going to get into that in a minute. In a February 1, 2024 blog post on the Environmental Defense Fund website, the post opens with this question. Why are four notorious carcinogens approved by the FDA for food? Good question. Four chemicals the post mentions are benzene, trichloroethylene, methylene chloride, and ethylene dichloride. In the section of the blog post with a blurb about each chemicals, all either are known to cause cancer in humans or are carcinogenic. Scanning that page for some highlights, we find that benzene, quote, is allowed in hops extracts used in beer production and supplements, end quote. Trichloroethylene, quote, is allowed in decaffeinated coffee. 
certain extracts of spices used as food and or color additives and hops extracts, end quote. Methylene chloride, quote, is allowed in decaffeinated coffee, certain extracts of spices used as food and or color additives and hops extracts, end quote, and Ethylene dichloride is, quote, allowed in certain extracts of spices used as food and or color additives, hops extracts in water used to wash sugar beets and to dilute pesticides, end quote. Do you get the idea you should make your own beer? Well, that sounds yummy, huh? Those chemicals have other uses than just decaffeinating coffee and making hops taste hoppier or something. Methylene chloride is in paint thinner. Trichloroethylene is also and is a solvent for degreasing metal parts. Ethylene dichloride is used to remove lead from gasoline and is used in the production of PVC pipes. Benzene is a solvent for pharmaceutical companies and is used in the production of gasoline. Well, doesn't that just say tasty feast? Sounds like a cat food. Maybe I should have said that. The economics part of the show is to wonder if the end result of those chemicals in foods can be achieved in any other way that doesn't use toxic chemistry. That is the substitute. What is unknown is A, does it exist, and B, what's it cost? Or maybe the chemicals are the substitutes for another way. That's also a possibility. Are these chemicals cheaper than other ways? Well, it, it kind of is asked and answered, maybe incorrectly, but it seems because of there that seems... In, in, in layman logic, self-evident that there's a reason for it, and the reason is it's probably cheap. If you are a consumer of almost anything at all, you'll notice that the quality of almost every damn thing is not now what it once was. Many, making crappy products because you can, instead of making crappy products to stay competitive, is another show. Poisoning your customers because it's cheaper should be an easy decision, so don't do that. Since we don't favor overlords overlording, hoping company A takes the high road and it makes a non-toxic product at a price point over or under all the competitors is a pretty certain way to go over, but yes, over. Making a price point higher than your competitors is a sure way to go out of business. Speaking of those overlords, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, allows those chemicals for the uses cited in the EDF post. The list of chemicals allowed by the FDA is frighteningly and impressively long. That is a long list of chemicals that ought not alarm you exactly because water is a chemical, table salt is a chemical. Not every chemical is harmful. Some are though, and maybe some of them ought not be in food. California, 
for all of the problems that state seems to create for itself, is way ahead of the curve on banning toxic stuff. They have the strictest rules on forever chemicals, a topic covered on this show only a few episodes ago. They also have strict rules about food additives. And other states are starting to ban some food additives from their grocery shelves, modeling the California Food Safety Act or something like that. Illinois is banning the same four chemicals in that California Food Safety Act. Illinois Senate Bill 2637 aims to ban brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propylparabene, and red dye number three from foods sold in stores. Now, first, a conflict. Mine. I don't, I, I can't speak, I don't favor the state mandating things and banning things. California and Illinois doing so is meddling in consumer choice. However, it seems pretty plain that nearly all mega food corporations will not make the changes for consumer wellness without some top-down pressure. Those additives are in too many things for consumers to refuse to purchase, which makes grassroots-level economic pressure nearly impossible. I like that those additives are being removed, that the FDA allows them when virtually the rest of the world has realized the harms from them exceed the benefits of them, seems to say something significant about the interests of the FDA. Now, there is also the economic question of unintended consequences. Is the substitute or the replacement for brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propylparabene, and red dye number three worse than the thing it's replacing? Could be. Maybe the devil you know. I don't, that's, who knows? I mean, but that's, that has to be considered by people, not us. Brominated vegetable oil, also abbreviated as BVO, is used in citrus-flavored sodas, citrus-flavored energy drinks, and some baked goods. The chief, if, the chief issue is the bromine. Foodnetwork.com has a post with this passage about bromine. Quote, bromine can irritate the skin, nose, mouth, and stomach, says Catherine Zaratsky, RDLD, Registered Dietitian at the Mayo Clinic. It's also been linked to neurologic symptoms in people who drink large quantities of citrus soda, more than two liters a day, end quote. The Watchdog Group Environmental Working Group has a page about potassium bromate. They identify more than 130 baked goods with potassium bromate. They also read, quote, in lab tests, Animals exposed to it had increased incidences of both benign and malignant tumors in the thyroid and peritoneum, the membrane that lines the abdominal cavity. 
Later research found that ingesting potassium bromate resulted in significant increases in cancer of the animal's thyroid, kidneys, and other organs, end quote. <laughs> Three times, I still can't do it. Propylparaben has our, our food preservatives used in baked goods to extend shelf life and delay the growth of food of food spoilage microorganisms, as paraphrased in an interview with doctors Carl Winter and Sean O'Keefe on the bestfoodfacts.org website. The last additive is the infamous red dye number three. Red dye number three is a synthetic dye and is a petroleum derivative. Red dye number three is banned in cosmetics in the U.S. by the FDA, and that was in 1990, but the FDA still allows it to be used in food. The FDA responded to studies that linked red dye number three in cosmetics to thyroid cancer in animals. One might wonder, why would they keep an additive such as that in food and remove it from cosmetics? If you find that answer, please do let me know. Website Prevention has a page about red dye number three and includes this passage from Daniel Ganjian, G-A-N-J-I-A-N, M-D, quote, if children ingest this dye, adverse effects may include hyperactivity, allergic reactions, and behavioral issues, end quote. Candy is the most common food source for red dye number three, uh, and maybe most famous of all, that is Skittles. But cookies and ice creams and baking decorations, you know, those little crappy royal icing things you buy in aisle six. Uh, gummy animals and probably gummy insects. Baby foods and more. When I worked at the Governor's Club in Tallahassee, we purchased bread from a commercial bakery in Thomasville, Georgia. Now, over one Christmas break, we were, we because it's a private club, and all the lobbyists were going to be closed for a few days, and they probably had stuff done with the building. Anyway, uh, I took home a loaf of sourdough sandwich bread. It was still in the sleeve, in the plastic bag. It was double sealed. Uh, and it was so not out of date, ready to go. Good, you know, good in-day bread. Somehow, over break, I didn't manage to eat so much as one sandwich, and the bread remained in the sleeve in the bag. A few weeks later, it's still there, and there's no mold. Well, <laughs> I thought that was odd. So, I left the bag bread in the bag, finally, until the following Christmas, and there was no mold. Now, I don't know what was in there to make mold not grow for a whole year. But I wasn't very interested in eating any more bread, I can tell you that. Now, that story is anecdotal. I have no idea, really, why the bread didn't mold. Maybe it was the high level of acid from whatever fake thing they created the sourdough flavor with. I will tell you that I don't much eat commercial bread now, uh, hamburger buns are hard to avoid, although I'm working on a gluten-free version of that. But that's, that's 
taking some time. It's it's a bigger challenge than you might think. Um, so I rarely eat bread I don't bake. To follow up a bit on the overlords banning things that are bad for us. That's the end of the line, it seems. What circumstances created the need or the want to use those additives in the first place? I think that's a good question to ask, and I don't know how we'll get the answer. Should the citizens demand those mega food companies start making better foods, or maybe Americans should pick better groceries? Maybe so. Maybe we should start growing our own with spring, you know, summer's coming, gardens can go in. It's a nice thought that consumer action or perhaps consumer inaction can make a difference. But when you have 130 different baked good items and and <laughs> go the next time you're in the grocery store, there this town has it's a small town has an alarming number of grocery stores and one of them is called Albertsons. Albertsons has one row, one aisle, two sides only for soft drinks. And and maybe uh, there's a small section there for sports drinks. There's a separate aisle for energy drinks, um, and and then there's waters and teas and all that other kind of stuff. An entire, so what, that 40, 80 feet of soda. And go read the ingredients and find out what's in there that isn't water that you can pronounce. And you're probably better off eating the box and eating the cans and drinking what's inside. But that's, you know, the didactic portion of the show. That's the tough thing. When people should be left to their own decisions that don't harm others, that's how probably it ought to be. It already fails when the choices given to shoppers are all harmful to one degree or another. Now, you've heard me mention before, geez, it's been maybe been a couple of years, that in the uh, the libertarian thinking, now, this isn't politics, but the libertarian sort of, I guess, creed or something, uh, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That sounds very nice, and it's actually a pretty good way to live. The problem with that is if you're mega food company A and you're putting poison in your food, you've kind of already botched the job. So that doesn't really work if you're this anyway, that's I don't want to get into that uh, that rabbit hole. But we need to we consumers, you and I buy stuff, we need to have a, a an option that isn't going to be as deadly or deadly at all. I would like that. Now, to do this episode, I had to look up what those additives were, the four that were sort of introductory to this episode and the four particular ones uh, in the California and Illinois. And by the way, amazingly, New York also is on the list of states uh, interested in banning those ingredients. Uh, one thing not listed but they want to add to that is titanium, di um, titanium dioxide, which is I covered – uh, incidentally, a couple of weeks ago, which is uh, in several things, including donut glaze, it makes it white and stay shiny. Now, that one I remember reading when I worked at a grocery store in the South with uh, an X at the end of his name, and they are sort of famous for their donuts. And there it is, titanium dioxide. Yum, yum. 
every one of those chemicals that I had to look up is a potential rabbit hole of an immense amount of information. You are not going to like hearing this. You will not want to do this. You might think it's someone else's responsibility. To avoid the crap we eat, it seems you have to read the labels. What are those things that you can't grow, pick, or pronounce? Should you eat them? And is there, is there, is there an alternative can, box, bag, package that doesn't have that stuff in it? I made beef, I made beef jerky this week for my daughter. Last week, I guess, actually. We tested a recipe she thought was interesting. We made it because the stuff in the store is expensive. I bought a pound of beef for the same price as two bags, which maybe was four ounces, of the jerky that I will approve of purchasing. And what I made, I know what the ingredients are. Now, as I was checking on it out of this, in the smoker, I sort of laughed to myself that one day she might be with friends eating something and she'll just shake her head in disappointment and say, my daddy could do so much better. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario that may never come to be, but I sort of enjoyed thinking about that. Uh, I didn't intend for this to be a make-your-own-food show. It seems more and more that's what's happening. They're turning into make-your-own-food shows. So I guess this is a make-your-own-food show. I make my own mayonnaise. I've probably mentioned that. I make my own peanut butter. I've probably mentioned that too. I, made, I have made my own cheese crackers. It's very easy. And now here's one of the problems. Here's one of the problems with stuff in the box with all the crap in it. It sets a standard of expectation and consistency that the homemade almost nearly doesn't match. And because it doesn't reach the expected crunch, flavor, texture, appearance, it's deemed, certainly by the under-18 crowd, as inferior, when in fact it's probably way better. And, and that's a legitimate challenge. It's not, how do you convince a 12-year-old that what daddy made is better than the crap that's in the box? Because it's what she wants. But that's a whole other show about food addictions, and, and that's, I, we'll see. Um, but that's a real problem. The challenge I have here is, is getting everyone to agree or to eat the, the improved version that looks nothing like the old one. And by making those few things, I get off the mega food company drug, so to speak, of whatever, sugar for sure, seed oil probably, uh, whatever that addiction is, I sort of break it a little at a time. And that's, that's how I get small steps. That's how you start. That's how I did it, and you can do it too. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add the text from this show to the show notes page, and it will have the links to those pages I referenced. So you can go and climb down into the rabbit hole yourself. Coming in. The ground is fine. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon.
Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.